Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelen Zinzi, Tabisolo Hoko and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories... Kenyans demand better security as they mourn massacre victims. Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe kicks off state visit to South Africa. And UN expresses concerns over the security situation in Yemen. In economics, South Africa's power utility to reinstate workers at Mudupi Power Station. And in sports news, CAF President to stand for another term in office. But first up, the news with Onilin Zinzi. Rwandan President Paul Kagame says that 21 years after Rwanda's genocide, the country is still threatened by the rebels who carried out the killings and who live across the border in eastern DRC. Speaking yesterday at a commemoration of the genocide which broke out on April 7, 1994, with more than 800,000 ethnic Tutsis and moderate Hutus killed, Kagame said the international community has failed to root out the Rwandan rebels accused of participating in the killings with the same decisive force that was used to defeat a different rebel group in eastern Congo in 2013. Kagame has been Rwanda's president since 2000 and is credited with stabilizing the country and putting it on a path to prosperity. Zimbabwe's ruling party says it will take legal action to stop any splinter group using the name ZANU-PF. Information Minister Jonathan Moyo has warned following rumors that ex-Vice President Joyce Mujuru may be about to head a breakaway faction of ZANU-PF, which will call itself ZANU-People First after. Uh, are spreading. Majuru was expelled from ZANU-PF last week, more than three months after she was sacked as vice president. Several of her high-profile supporters have also been expelled from ZANU-PF. This state visit also comes at an opportune time, given that uh, President Mugabe is currently the chairperson. Meanwhile, Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe is in South Africa on a two-day state visit to the country. The 91-year-old leader undertakes his second state visit to South Africa since 1994. South Africa's Department of International Relations and Cooperation spokesperson Gleason Munyela elaborates on the importance of Mugabe's state visit. This state visit also comes at an opportune time, given that uh, President Mugabe is currently the chairperson of South Africa, as well as the chairperson of the African Union. Uh, it's an occasion for the two countries to take stock of our bilateral relations, the status thereof, and explore new areas of enhancing uh, the strong ties in the areas of trade, political relations, as well as to pe- people-to-people relations or social relations. So it's a, it's a, it's a very important state visit. 
Police arrested five members of a pro-democracy group in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo as they protested against the illegal detention of activists in their capital, Kinshasa. The political climate in Congo is tense ahead of the presidential election scheduled for late next year when President Joseph Kabila's mandate is set to expire. Anti-government protests have sometimes turned violence. In January, at least 40 people were killed during a march against a proposed election law that critics say is intended to extend Kabila's time in power. Authorities in Burkina Faso have arrested three former ministers from the government of deposed dictator Blaise Compaore. Leon's Kone from Compaore's formerly ruling CDP party says the former ministers are among a string of figures connected to the old regime who have been arrested in recent days. Kone added the two former mayors, including the current secretary general of the CDP party, were also arrested. Compaore held power for 27 years but stepped down in October last year after angry mass rallies opposing a bid to amend the constitution to allow him to stay in power. Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Onele. It's 8.05 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe has arrived in South Africa for his first state visit in over two decades of democracy. 91-year-old Mugabe will hold private talks with President Jacob Zuma to bolster trade relations. The influx of Zimbabwean economic migrants, illegal renditions and regional challenges are all expected to dominate Mugabe's two-day visit. Tsepo Ikaneng reports. Despite the close political and economic ties between Pretoria and Harare, this is only President Robert Mugabe's first state visit since 1994. It comes almost two years after President Jacob Zuma concluded his mediation efforts that saw Zimbabweans going to the polls. Following the elections, Harare is slowly emerging from economic isolation, desperate to kickstart its almost destroyed economy. South Africa is Zimbabwe's biggest trading partner with exports at 24.8 billion rand, while Zimbabwe's exports to South Africa reached 2 billion rand. Department of International Relations says President Jacob Zuma and Mugabe will sign off a number of trade and investment agreements. Spokesperson Gleason Munyela elaborates on the importance of Mugabe's state visit. The state visit also comes at an, at an opportune time, given that uh, President Mugabe is currently the chairperson of Saudi as well as the chairperson of the African Union. Uh, it's an occasion for the two countries uh, to take stock of our bilateral relations, the status thereof, and explore new areas of enhancing uh, the strong ties in the areas of trade, political relations, as well as to people-to-people relations or social relations. Uh, So it's a a very important state visit. Uh, We want to strengthen uh, the strong ties that exist between the two countries, and uh, the state visit is an occasion to do it. Meanwhile, crisis in Zimbabwe Coalition Human Rights Organization has called on President Zuma and Mugabe to be frank and push for accountability in the alleged rendition of Zimbabwe nationals by South African security agencies with some allegedly killed in that country. 
The renditions have sparked a leadership crisis within the Hawks and the Independent Police Investigative Directorate with at least two heads facing disciplinary action, whilst another is negotiating an exit package. To date, there has been no convictions, with reports that some of the nationals were murdered by security agencies in that country. Crisis in Zimbabwe Coalition spokesperson Joy Madenge has urged President Zuma to be firm with Mugabe when discussing Zimbabwe's ailing economy and that country's human rights record. As Zimbabweans, we feel abandoned. We are really concerned about the economic situation in the country because uh, more and more people are being driven into abject poverty every day. We are really concerned by the deteriorating human rights situation in Zimbabwe. You may or you may not be aware that uh, it's almost a month now after a human rights activist, uh, Itai Zamara, was abducted by suspected state security agents. And we expect President Zuma to impress upon uh, uh, President Mugabe the need for him to uh, act responsibly as one, the Sadiq chairperson, but two also as the African Union chairperson and lead by example and ensure that whatever is happening in Zimbabwe is for the benefit of the people of Zimbabwe. The influx of Zimbabweans to South Africa is expected to be one of the major issues to be discussed by the two heads of state. Pretoria has been battling to issue working permits for the thousands of economic migrants whilst others continue to be in the country illegally. Monyela says this issue cannot be ignored. I don't think you can have a state visit between South Africa and Zimbabwe and ignore uh, that uh, critical question uh, of uh, the number of Zimbabweans in South Africa and uh, the impact uh, it has on a number of issues uh, in South Africa and in Zimbabwe. So that matter will certainly uh, be looked at uh, as uh, one of the issues to be discussed uh, during the state visit. Uh, So it's in the national interest of South Africa to have a strong, stable and economically growing Zimbabwe. President Mugabe's state visit will culminate with the Zimbabwe-South Africa Business Forum tomorrow. Mugabe is accompanied by the First Lady Grace, members of his cabinet and business people. Tsepo Ikaneng in Pretoria. Hundreds of Kenyans took to the streets yesterday demanding greater security following last week's massacre by Somalia's Shabab Islamists on the final day of mourning for the 147 people killed by the militants. Meanwhile, Kenya Air Force warplanes are reported to have carried out more attacks on the rebels' training camps inside Somalia. James Shimanula was on the streets of Nairobi to gauge the mood after the Garissa attack. The killing of 148 university students in northeastern Kenya by Al-Shabaab militants has drawn a mixed reaction from Kenyans. Some praise the government for crushing the attack within a short time, while others complain about the lack of national security. They want the Nairobi authorities to deploy battalions of troops along the porous border with neighboring Somalia. Our border should be secured, not when there's a threat, but always so that we remain safe. They should heighten security and they should not ignore the security threats and the security alerts. Some Kenyans are convinced that the attacks were carried out by militants who are trained in Somalia but are living in Kenya. Somebody from outside can't know our country, so it's only people who are within. The government should increase more 
of its security. The government had tried, but uh, those who are doing such things are within Kenya, not from outside Kenya. That probably means they are being trained in Kenya. Some Kenyans are also wondering whether or not Kenyan troops stationed in Somalia as part of the African Union and some force should be brought home. I feel the government should get our troops back. Instead of them being in Somalia, they should be getting our borders. I feel the enemy is within us. I feel uh, the government should do more because our armies are in the barracks uh, waiting for war. We are already at war. They should come out and protect us. Opposition leader Raila Odinga, who was Prime Minister when Kenya first sent troops in Somalia in 2011, said the government should start thinking about pulling out, just as the United States withdrew troops after 18 soldiers were killed in the 1993 Black Hawk Down incident in Mogadishu. Meanwhile, the Kenyan army said, Kenyan fighter jets had pounded al-Shabaab insurgent camps in southern Somalia for the third consecutive day. This came on the last day of national mourning as security forces tried to hunt down those behind the university killings. In another development, five Kenyan men have appeared in court for allegedly involved in last week's deadly attack on northern Kenya's Garissa University. University College. The men were identified as Osman Abdi Dakane, Mohammed Adan Suro, Hassan Adan, Abdi Abika, and Sahal Derinye Hussein. The sixth suspect, a Tanzanian national identified as Rashid Mberesero, did not show up in court. According to police, the Tanzanian is still in Garissa where he is reportedly assisting Kenya's anti-terror police unit to investigate the Garissa attack. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. We ask you this morning, Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe kicks off his state visit to South Africa today, the first in 21 years amid economic problems in his countries. So depleted is the Zimbabwean fiscus that Mugabe has reportedly asked South Africa to host a SADC summit on industrialization that starts on April the 26th. South Africa has reportedly refused, meaning that Mugabe has extended a begging bowl to local companies and banks instead. Our question to you this morning is... Which issues are likely to dominate discussions between President Mugabe and his South African counterpart, President Jacob Zuma? Give us your thoughts on email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or you can get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa 1. Which issues are likely to dominate the discussions between President Mugabe and his South African counterpart, President Jacob Zuma? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Hundreds of Kenyans have held a candle-lit vigil in 
honor of 147 people who were killed during the Garissa University attack on last week Thursday. Meanwhile, the Kenyan government says it has frozen the bank accounts of 86 entities and individuals suspected of financing terrorism in Kenya. Sarah Kimani has more. Singing dirges and holding rose stems, they remembered those lost in several insecurity incidences in Kenya. They were here to honor those who died in the university attack. Uh, we want to name the victims of the violence. Every time there's a killing, we know the perpetrator, it's Al-Shabaab. Al-Shabaab was a propaganda video, we know who the killers were. But we never know about the victims, the family, their dreams, their hopes, and who they were. And now we're saying we shall never forget. It's a project that we are going to name every single person who does because of a terror attack that is preventable. They lit 147 candles and placed them next to 147 white crosses, which were draped with 147 Kenyan flags. This is not just a number. The Kenyan government has placed the death toll from the Garissa University massacre at 147. Among them, 142 students, three Kenyan security officers, and two security guards. We feel, as a parent, I feel it's like I've lost my own son or my own daughter. And we are here to tell the parents and the relatives who have lost their beloved ones that we are together with them. We are mourning together and we are praying that this cowardice act will not take place again in this country. And I feel uh, the student fraternity is wounded. I decided to come and show solidarity to one of my own. Yes. They vowed to remain united in the face of attacks aimed at splitting the country along ethnic lines. I don't think whether we'll hate on Muslims, we'll still love them. We love them so much. Our friends are Muslims. We'll, we can't revenge. And that report by Sarah Kimani in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. Members of the Muslim community in South Africa's coastal city of Cape Town say parents need to be more vigilant about monitoring the online activities of their children. This as a 15-year-old girl from that city was taken off a plane bound for Johannesburg. Police suspect she was on her way to join the Islamic State organization after having been recruited through social media. Sisandangwala has more. The recruitment and radicalization of young people is a growing global concern and the internet with its far-reaching tentacles is fertile breeding ground for impressionable teens. The Department of State Security says the 15-year-old had been online reading up on the IS and other similar organizations. Is there a behavior that is actually unbecoming? Do they find space that these children can share what are they actually doing on this social network? Because they can actually even be used for human smuggling, issues of drugs that can happen. Other people can actually even commit acts of espionage in the, in the social network. News of the incident seems to have shocked the quiet middle-class interfaith suburb of Kenwin in Cape Town, where the girl is from. Residents refused to speak to the SABC, but a crime-fighting activist from the area, Hanif Lunat, says parents should wake up to what their children are doing on the internet because whether they believe it or not, recruitment is taking place in South Africa. It's isolated cases. There shouldn't become a fear. Our, com- our parents should not now become fearful that every child has been recruited. Recruitment is done very intelligently. It's done very professionally. Your child will only be recruited if he's 
portraying himself as a radical because he, what your child puts on social media has been viewed by certain recruiters and these recruiters are professional they watch what you say they watch your accent, actions they watch who you associated with and they know when to tackle parents have been encouraged to install applications that will help them monitor what their children get up to online the department of state security says it's currently investigating issues such as is's recruitment and funding methods i'm sisanda ngwala in cape town africa rise and shine africa africa wake up africa africa revetwa africa africa wema sunrise le soleil élevé weya wema Within the happen Africa Africa Dumelang Sanbonani Africa Mulishadi Pulibonji Africa Enyomi Kilonshele Africa Ndinkim Kinkunume Within the happen Africa It doesn't matter where you come from we, we are, are one people Channel Africa Channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria Channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance Africa rise and shine Africa Zorza Africa Amuka na Unai Deputy Permanent Representative of Rwanda to the United Nations says 21 years after the Rwandan genocide there are still people who deny it was perpetrated Jean Dark Biage says the International Day of Reflection on the Genocide in Rwanda is an opportunity to remind the world that crimes that were committed should never be repeated again. In 1994, more than 800,000 people, mainly Tutsi, moderate Hutu and Twa, were systematically killed across Rwanda in less than three months. The UN Radio's Priscilla Lecomte met with the ambassador and began by asking her about the importance of the annual commemoration. We have this uh, ritual every year so that we can remember collectively, you know, we remember our loved one on a daily basis. That togetherness gives us strength to contemplate what went through and um, that gives us the courage to continue in our quest to reconcile and uh, to reunite and also for younger generation uh, whenever we meet for that uh, gathering that we don't repeat the same event again we are um, confronted with people who try to deny and trivialize facts of genocide so we need to s- sit together and really fight against those people who are denying uh, genocide so for us it is very important to remind the whole world that um, a genocide has been perpetrated and also for our own people to take the resolve for not repeating what happened uh, in uh, 1994 more than half of the population have not witnessed the genocide they were not even born at that time how do you make sure that they follow this spirit of unity and reconciliation it must be a hard task Of course it is but uh, for Rwanda we have an inclusive society and uh, everyone 
takes part in any decision taken in the country. And those youngsters, you know, don't forget that they lived during the last 21 years with parents who were affected by the genocide. I'm going to t- tell you about one program loosely uh, called Ndumu Nyarwanda, which is loosely translated, I am a Rwandan. That program uh, is uh, a way to really uh, sit together, speak the truth, uh, try to see what went wrong and um, find ways to make sure that what happened uh, doesn't occur again. And uh, it is done in a spirit of frankness and uh, those who feel like uh, apologizing do so. And uh, we noticed that that program really helped a lot, uh, helped people to move on, even for survivors to get some uh, kind of closure. Do you think that at the United Nations enough steps have been taken to prevent other mass murders like that? Do you think that the world is free from another genocide or safe? I wouldn't say so, that the world is is safe. But uh, what I can recognize really and acknowledge is that the United Nations have put in place uh, some tools, uh, especially in the prevention of genocide or in the responsibility to protect. But uh, what I doubt is... um, an immediate intervention when uh, things uh, escalate, when people are dying. Uh, to put uh, this apparatus in, in motion, I think it would take a long time. Considering all that has been done to make sure that there is a united reconciliation in the country, do you think that there are still some challenges? You know, the FDLR are still roaming free in, in neighboring countries and uh, Even uh, the deadline that was given of 2nd January uh, by the UN to uh, arrest them uh, has not been um, taken seriously. There are still no one uh, bothered them, so they are still roaming free. And that is a threat in the region because they haven't uh, abandoned their ideology, their genocide ideology. They are still raping women. They are still doing whatever they did in Rwanda. So for us to have those people in the proximity of Rwanda and even if you try to do our homework at home, we still have uh, those threats in the region. We really need to have justice rendered to the survivors also who are trying to move on uh, with their lives and uh, who are trying to get some uh, kind of closure. The healing process uh, is derailed when, when you see such things happening. That was Priscilla Lacombe, Deputy Representative of Rwanda to the United Nations, speaking to UN Radio's Jean-Darc Biaget. It's 8.25 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The UN says over 560 people have been killed in Yemen since fighting escalated in late March between Houthi rebels and armed groups loyal to the elected government. A military coalition of regional powers led by Saudi Arabia has taken on the Houthi advance in the south of the country in a conflict that has left at least 100,000 people displaced. The UN says efforts to broker ceasefire and get parties back around the negotiating table are continuing. Yemen descended into chaos in the weeks since the Houthis, who complain of being marginalized in the majority Sunni country, forced President Abdurrabu Mansour Hadi from power. Show in Bryce Peace reports. While the Saudi-led coalition considers sending in ground troops, a precarious situation on the ground has gone from bad to worse. Scores of children have already been killed or injured, 
as UNICEF's Christophe Pouliarac, speaking in Geneva, explains. With conflict escalating in many parts of Yemen, children continue to be killed, injured, displaced and put at increasing risk from disease. These children should be immediately afforded special respect and protection by all parties to the conflict in line with international humanitarian law. Aid agencies have warned of a dire humanitarian situation on the ground as the UN special advisor on Yemen, Jamal Benomar, is struggling to get a political dialogue back on track. The UN Secretary General spokesperson Stefan Dujeric explains. The fighting only intensifies uh, the need uh, for talks as to whether or not it's beyond the the possible, I think we'll have to wait for the outcome. Uh, what is happening is that Mr. Benomar is continuing that task. He's currently in Doha, in Qatar, having discussions, as uh, if I'm not mistaken, Qatar is currently chairing the GCC. So his, his work uh, continues and I think uh, is even more important as we, see, uh, as we see the civilian suffering in Yemen. The World Bank cites Yemen as one of the poorest countries in the Arab world. It has a poverty rate of over 54%, while about 45% of the entire population is food insecure. The conflict is exasperating an already precarious situation for children in a country prone to food insecurity. Of the 560 people who have been killed since the start of the fighting, an estimated 74 of them are children. Another 44 children have been maimed. Wherever security conditions permit, UNICEF is working with its partners to provide affected families with drinking water and health services. As the fighting intensifies, with talk even of ground troops being sent in to fight the Houthis, this is yet another country collapsing in full view of an international community unable to move fast enough to arrest a situation now spiraling out of control. And with that escalation, the office of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees is expecting thousands to flee across the Gulf of Aden to the Horn of Africa, particularly the country of Djibouti. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. It's 8.30 Central African time and our headlines up next. Rwandan President Paul Kagame says the international community has failed to root out the Rwandan rebels accused of participating in the killings of the country. Authorities in Burkina Faso have arrested three former ministers from the government of deposed dictator Blaise Compaore and Zimbabwe's ruling party to take legal action to stop any splinter group using the name ZANU-PF. Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Thank you, Onele. The situation in Ukraine has been described by a top United Nations official as a real tragedy, which is man-made and affecting people in a dramatic way. John Jing, the operations director of the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, says more than a million displaced Ukrainians fleeing violence may be alive but have no life. Meanwhile, the UN estimates that more than 6,000 people have been killed since fighting between government and pro-Russian separatists began in April 2014. Jing elaborates. I'm very alarmed with the situation that's unfolding in uh, Ukraine. It's uh, another 
real tragedy, um, again, man-made because it's conflict, uh, avoidable, should be in a political process to solve. But instead, it's, of course, spilling over into conflict, which is affecting just so many people in a very dramatic way. The humanitarian suffering, not just with the loss of life, but, uh, but also the physical suffering, the psychological suffering, it's very alarming. Those displaced people, they are dreaming about going back to their homes. And uh, what do you think their perspectives are right now? Right now, it, they don't have a perspective of going home because the conflict is really quite intense more people are being displaced rather than people being able to return home. That's, of course, uh, psychologically very difficult for people to understand why there can't be um, political solutions that enable them to get on with their lives. I mean, people have been displaced, and it's over 1.1 million people who've been displaced internally, and over a quarter of a million that have been made refugees that have gone into particularly the Russian Federation. These people are desperately wanting to get back home, get their children back to school, and get back to having and rebuilding their lives so that they have a hopeful future. But when you're a displaced person, you have no life. You're just alive, but you have no life. It's terrible. I know that you demanded uh, access uh, of the humanitarian missions to all displaced people. Mm -hmm. And do you think this goal is reached now? Well, we have brought to everybody's attention that access is a problem for humanitarians. Hospitals are without basic drugs and medicine, uh, medical centers. Livelihoods have been destroyed by this banking crisis where the banks in the uh, conflict areas have been closed. It's hurting everybody in every aspect of their lives. The pensioners haven't been paid their pensions. It's the vulnerable, it's the old, it's the children, children not at school. Vaccination campaigns have been stopped, so... No child has been vaccinated in Ukraine since this conflict began. This is 2015. Children should not be exposed to the risks of preventable diseases. Um, schools should not be interrupted because of political failure. Businesses, just ordinary life, uh, we're better than this in 2015. We should be better than this in 2015. For sure, it's a very controversial and difficult political problem, but it has to be taken away from impacting directly on innocent civilians. Again, that's what we saw. We saw it was the ordinary people who are living in the bomb shelters, uh, whose children are not at school, who have uh, no income, uh, who are just uh, physically and psychologically suffering. That's the tragedy of this. It's really appalling to see how quickly the situation has deteriorated in this country. What about Minsk Agreement? Do you think it works? As a humanitarian, I'm not involved in the politics, but we have to hope that the Minsk Agreement works because that's the agreement that is there. There's a political process, there is an agreement, and it needs to be implemented. That's what the people want. Everyone that we met, every ordinary person that is suffering, they want peace. That's what they want, and they want the politicians, not just Ukrainians, but, but internationally, to sort this out in an agreement, in a political process, and let them get back to living their lives, sending their children to school, vaccinating their children, hospitals and clinics working again, people who are suffering from diabetes, from other diseases, they need to get their treatments. It's not happening. Again, we need the leaderships who are involved in the politics of this to make the agreement work. It's urgent. Any optimism? We have to be hopeful, um, but we also have to be honest. Right now, the situation is uh, deteriorating very quickly in Ukraine. Um, this is preventable. We should be able to, as an international community, prevent it. 
from deteriorating. And if we don't, then more people will be killed. There will be more humanitarian suffering. And it doesn't matter how long a conflict goes on in the end, it always concludes. The only question is how long it takes to get to the conclusion and how many people have to die and suffer in the meantime. So there will be an end to this. That's the history of our human existence. I hope that this one will be short because it's urgent that it be shortened. It's the civilians, it's the innocent people that are suffering. Um, I saw in the people a lot of hope the way communities have mobilized to help those who are suffering. I mean, there's a generosity there, there's a solidarity there. I didn't hear the rhetoric of conflict at the community level. I heard it at the political level, but not at the community level. That gives me hope. That was John Jing, Operations Director for the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, speaking to UN Radio's Najiz Shekingskaya. It is 8.35 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The global threat of transnational organized crime is due to be discussed at an upcoming United Nations meeting. Qatar will be hosting the 13th Crime Congress in Doha next week, bringing together government representatives and experts to discuss the links between security, justice and how to build a more equitable world. Executive Director of the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, Yuri Fedotov, elaborates. Since uh, 60 years, the transnational organized crime has become more sophisticated and uh, fully utilizing the process of globalization. For instance, using uh, the easy way of communication, transportation, as well as the most uh, sophisticated tools like Internet, uh, cyberspace, uh, to coordinate their criminal activities. National borders uh, do not stop criminals. That's why international cooperation has uh, to grow. That's why the 13th uh, Crime Congress is very important. Uh, We're going to discuss at this Congress what else uh, could be done to uh, strengthen this uh, response of the international community under the guidance of the United Nations to this uh, challenge of uh, globalization, which is transnational organized crime. It's very difficult to measure the extent of some crimes because of a lack of data. What is being done to improve data collection? And will the topic of data collection be discussed at the Congress? Of course it will be discussed and uh, for UNODC is vital because it's one of three major pillars of our office, UN Office on Drugs and Crime, in order to provide a clear guidance to member states how to tackle global challenges. What do you see as the role of the public in strengthening crime prevention and criminal justice? Oh, we can't do anything without public. We can't do anything about civil society. All our efforts, what UNODC is doing, can succeed only if supported by public. Because what <coughs> we're doing is based on a few principles. One of them is local ownership of all our projects and programs. What kind of approaches need to be taken to prevent and adequately respond to new and emerging forms of transnational crime? We need a comprehensive response. We need a very close partnership and cooperation within the UN family. We can deliver only if we act as one UN. No doubts about that. Because quite often one agency, such as UNODC, for instance, is unable to solve this problem because they are linked to 
sustainable development, improvement of the quality of life, building infrastructure, creating jobs, establishing better social climate in the societies, ensuring access to public uh, services such as health, such as education, and so on. So we can succeed only if we combine our efforts. That was Yuri Fedotov speaking to Mark Hudson of UN Radio, Executive Director of the UN Office on Drugs and Crime. It's 8.39 Central African Time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Vice President of Zambia, Inonge Wina, has urged the Association of African Public Service Commissions to collaborate, share experience and best practices in order to promote good corporate governance and improve service delivery. The Vice President was speaking at the opening of the Fourth Association of the African Public Service Commission's General Assembly in Livingston. Hilda Akekelua has more from Livingston. Mrs. Wina said despite being endowed with abundant natural resources, the continent remains the poorest on earth, faced with various social and economic challenges. She says it's up to public sector organizations such as the association to work towards improving services on the continent that will lead to the improvement of lives of many people. She said, as for Zambia, and in line with the African Charter, the public service in the country is undergoing reforms to reposition the service commission from transitional to more strategic and oversight roles to ensure that the values and principles that enhance good governance are upheld. With the ever-increasing demands by the public on the need for transparency, accountability, prudent use of public resources, merit-based recruitment and promotion, the service commissions cannot therefore afford a business-as-usual attitude, but gravitate towards a more responsive role that will build public confidence in the manner the service commissions conduct their business. The Public Service Commission of Zambia, in collaboration with other sector service commissions, plays a fundamental role in promoting and maintaining good corporate governance and public administration in the public service. It is through such collaborative efforts by the Association of African Public Services Commissions, working with the various service commissions in Africa, that a common vision of development can be realized. Elia, in his welcoming remarks, APSCOM's chairperson and Zambia secretary to the cabinet, Dr. Roland Museska, said since its inception, the Commission has made strides in sharing experiences and best practices in relation to good governance in public services. The purpose of the sessions of African Public Service Commission uh, should be uh, applauded, especially given that the continent itself has passed the 50 years uh, mark. It is a time to sit down and reflect and see whether in fact the governance architecture that we have created for ourselves 
is the appropriate one to take us in the 21st century. The General Assembly of the Association of African Public Service Commission brings together non-experts in the field of public administration and management and uh, a political science. This is therefore the best platform to identify and I think reflect very deeply on whether indeed the structures that we have for governance on this continent is the kind of structures that will take us in the future. Established in 2008 through the signing of a memorandum of understanding between 20 African Public Service Commissions representing 15 countries in Africa, the purpose of the association is to collaborate, share experiences and best practices among public service commissions in order to promote good governance and improve service delivery in the public services of the continent. Over the next three days, delegates to the 4th General Assembly will discuss issues relevant to good governance, professionalism and democracy in line with the main theme, harnessing the energy and commitment of African Public Service Commissions to promote and build the African Governance Architecture. In addition, they will also discuss sub-themes of building public service merit and professionalism for good governance and democracy in Africa, how to deepen good governance and democracy through promoting professionalism, ethical public administration across the continent, and the African Union Agenda 2063, a critical enabler for professional ethical public administration across the continent. Discussants include Dr. Kawaeka Manga, APSCOM Vice President for Southern Region, Director General of the South African Public Service Commission, Professor Levin, and Dr. Joe Abba, the Director General of the Bureau of Public Service Reforms of Nigeria. Reporting for Channel Africa from Livingston in Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. It's 8.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehuku. Botswana's so-called producer Morupula Colliery has sealed supply deals with South Africa and Namibia. The colliery's marketing manager Jonathan Farhia has revealed that one of the deals is for the supply of coal under the Southern African Power Tool. A correspondent in Namibia, Friki Valles, reports. Under its recently finalized expansion, Morupule Colliery increased its production from about 1 million tons of coal per annum to 3.2 million tons, although full capacity production can reportedly reach 4 million tons per annum. Vergeer says that they are on 24-hour loading for the markets that they have managed to secure. At present, overseas coal exports out of Botswana are limited by the lack of heavy haul infrastructure to seaports. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma will today hold talks with the Zimbabwean counterpart Robert Mugabe at the Union Building in Pretoria. Economic relations, the continuing migration of Zimbabweans to South Africa, illegal renditions and regional challenges are expected to dominate the talks. The two leaders are expected to sign several trade and investment agreements, Tepo Iganen reports. 
Despite the close political and economic ties between Pretoria and Harare, this is only President Robert Mugabe's second state visit since 1994. It comes almost two years after President Jacob Zuma concluded his mediation efforts that saw Zimbabweans go into their polls. Following the elections, Harare is slowly emerging from economic isolation, desperate to kickstart its almost destroyed economy. South Africa is Zimbabwe's biggest trading partner, with exports at 24.8 billion rand, while Zimbabwe's export to South Africa reached 2 billion rand. Tsepoika name for SABC News in Pretoria. South Africa's power utility ESCOM has agreed to reinstate workers at its Midupi power station who were dismissed after an unprotected strike last month. The strike was the latest in a series of industrial disputes which have set construction of the power stations back for years. ESCOM spokesperson Gulu Pasiwe says the contractors and labor unions have agreed that those who were dismissed will report to work today. Everyone is expected to be back at their post tomorrow. And uh, as far as the request or demands that were made by the workers uh, previously, we are currently engaging with the contractors and the union to make sure that uh, we do need uh, um, or at least uh, sort of come to a settlement in terms of those demands. The International Monetary Fund Board has approved Ghana's request for a bailout program to help stabilize the country's economy. Ghana is expected to get $918 million spread over three years following the board's approval. The executive board of the International Monetary Fund today, or rather yesterday, approved a three-year arrangement under the extended credit facility for Ghana. This will result in about $300 million being advanced to Ghana every year. The first disbursement of $100 million is expected to hit the Bank of Ghana's accounts in the coming weeks. Standard Chartered Bank has said it understands the action taken by the Bank of Zambia to increase the statutory reserve ratio from 14% to 18% effective today. Now, Standard Chartered Bank Acting Managing Director James Corney says he's a bank believes it was within the central bank's discretion to apply monetary policy tools to ensure stability in the financial sector. Recently, the Bank of Zambia announced an increase in the statutory reserve ratio from 14% to 18% as from April the 8th, 2015, in a bid to address the equature volatility. Indicators at the SAWA on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The U.S. dollar trades at 11.83 South African Rand, 9.82 Botswana Bula, 7.43 in Zambia, 0.67 British Pound, 0.91 Euro, Gold 1.208 dollars, Platinum 1.168 dollars an ounce, Brand Crude 5.8 dollars to 3 cents a barrel. That's an economic update here on Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance, Charles Moyo, steer the ship. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans, and starting off with football news. 
A motion to lift an age limit that would keep Issa Hayatou in control of the Confederation of African Football for the unforeseeable future has been ununanimously approved. Hayatou will now be able to campaign for another term in office when his current mandate ends in 2017. All 54 countries at the organization's Congress in Cairo voted in favor of a proposal on Tuesday to change the statuses which previously stopped officials serving past the age of 17. This ruling opens the door for the 68-year-old to enjoy another term until at least 2021. The Cameroon official has been in charge of CAF since 1988 and has had a few serious challenges for power during his long stint. FIFA President Sef Blatter and Chairperson of the African Union Commission Dr. Nkosazana Lamini Zuma have highlighted the huge role of the Confederation of African Football in developing on the continent. The two personalities underscored the importance of the continent's soccer governing body and growth of all sectors of the economy in their opening remarks at the CAF Ordinary General Assembly in Cairo, Egypt. They both highlighted the significant successes choked by CAF and the huge role of the popular sport towards the promotion of peace and stability on the African continent. Plata, who expressed delight at the opportunity to officially open the gathering, the legislative and supreme body of the the continent's soccer governing body says over 1.6 billion of the world's population are involved in football, making the greatest avenue for global unity. On to tennis news, South African wheelchair tennis aces Lucas Setole and Khotato Monjane have both been seeded in the top four of their respective divisions for this week's airports company South Africa Gauteng Open to be played in Benoni, which gets underway in just a couple of few in just a few minutes' time at the Gauteng East Tennis Complex in Benoni Lake, east of Johannesburg. Setole has been in, has been seeded in the quads division behind top seed world number one David Wagner of the United States who Sitola should meet on Sunday's final if all goes according to plan. Monjane has been seeded four in the women's singles. Sabine Ellerbrook of Germany is the top seed in the women's singles, followed by Molojoan Bios of the, of the Netherlands, with Catherine Kruger of Germany seeded in third. The only other South African seeded in the tournament is Bongani Tamini of KwaZulu-Natal, who has been seeded sixth in the quads division. Being seeded, Sitola and Monjane will not play in the opening day and will get their campaign underway on Thursday. However, South Africa's top men's singles player, Evans Mariba, will be in action this morning. And finally, in golf news, defending champion Buba Watson says the Augusta National Golf Course, which is to host the first major of the year, the Masters, is the best ever. Watson is one of the favourites to clinch this year's trophy, although Adam Scott of Australia and world number one Rory McIlroy top the bookies list. Even so, Watson, who has been battling with goosebumps since Monday, says he's looking forward to the challenge. Like we were talking back there, this is the... the perfect golf course the shape is perfect the uh, the grass is always pretty green um greens were running pretty fast yesterday haven't played it today but greens were running pretty pretty quick yesterday um golf course it it, it gives me goosebumps every time you come down magnolia lane um obviously seeing the kids on sunday easter sunday was a uh, was special passing out some trophies this year um I mean, it just gets you excited. It makes us feel like a kid again. And so uh, I'm excited to be here. Looking forward to the challenges of the golf course and 
and trying to compete at this golf course. The two-time Masters champion says he's better prepared this time around than when he won it back in 2012. Add as a tradition here at the Master that the winner of the previous event gets to choose the menu that will be served on the eve of the tournament shortly after the par 3 contest. Watson reckons the experience as overwhelming. Well, I think the, the first thing is if you're, it was your first time winning, like I did in 12, 13, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I'm scared to death of Champions Dinner in 13 because, I mean, you're talking about great champions across the board old and young, and, and now I'm getting to sit and have dinner with them, and I'm making sure they like the food that I picked out. And so, um, you know, it's just the media attention, the atmosphere. You know, you're even a year later, you're still excited about your win. Um, so sometimes you get away from your routine or you or you just um, use your energy in a different way. Um, that's what I did. I don't know about the other guys, but that's what I did. And um, so this time I know what to expect. doesn't mean I'm going to play better. It's just I know what to expect. I know how to save some energy. I know how things are going to happen in Champions Dinner now. Um, so I, uh, I know more. That doesn't mean it's going to help. It just means that I I'm, should be better prepared this time. Well, those are your sports news at this hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour. Kenyans demand better security after another deadly terror attack. Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe kicks off state visit to South Africa. And the UN expresses concerns over the security situation in Yemen. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagaza and Selina Dobong, technical producer Charles Moyo, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Davido with the track title Skele Wu. Say you want to dance, dance. you want all the money from my bank. Oh, yes, scatter the count. God, the bad is living in town. When they see me around, they scatter the dance like that. Oh, yes, 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 scatter the